Welcome to the Inclusive Growth Show with Toby Milden. Future-proofing your business by creating a diverse workplace. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Inclusive Growth Show. I'm Toby Milden. Thank you for joining me and I'm looking forward to spending the next few minutes with you. And on this episode, I'm joined by Freddie Herbert, who's a senior researcher at the London School of Economics. Um, Freddie, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Toby. Freddie, can you tell us a bit about your professional background and what you do as a senior researcher at the LSE? Sure. So, um, I'm a member of a team at LSE called the Inclusion Initiative. So as the name suggests, uh, it's a kind of research group who are focused on providing uh, robust evidence about the impact of inclusive teams on firm outcomes and also about the kinds of tools, techniques, uh, behaviours and cultures which need to be in place to build an appropriately uh, inclusive work culture. My, my background uh, prior to joining uh, the Inclusion Initiative at, at LSE has kind of seen lots of different hats, I guess, uh, which I've worn. So um, I'm also a civil servant. So I work part time in the civil service uh, on children's social care issues. Uh, and prior to that, I've spent time in the kind of marketing sector, uh, strategic communication sector, behavioral change research, and also many, many years ago now uh, as a teacher as well. And that's taken me to, to kind of Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan, China, and the UAE, um, as I've kind of tried to sort of broaden my scope and and work in in kind of diverse different settings uh, to broaden my skills. So I think I'm the real sort of classic um, millennial prototype of a, of the workplace in that I've kind of embraced constant change and and learning without a really kind of like clearly defined uh, path. But I've always been focused on understanding behaviour. Uh, so my academic background is in economics and cognitive neuroscience. I'm you know, most interested in how we can take an evidence-based approach to delivering, to delivering social good. And that's how I really ended up working uh, with LSE uh, because you know, their, their main role and their, and their interest uh, at the Inclusion Initiative is to try and build that evidence base uh, around um, inclusive workplace cultures um, and to kind of harness behavioral science to do that. Um, so, yeah, I'm really passionate about the work we do at TII and I'm, I'm sort of very privileged to have had these opportunities to work in you know, quite a range of different uh, industries uh, and uh, apply my passion really for sort of understanding and um, and shaping pro-social behaviours. That's brilliant. And presumably your diverse background in terms of the the jobs that you've done at, you know adds a lot of value to the the research that you are doing for the um, the inclusion initiative. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, I think, you know, one thing we're really um, aware of at TAI is that we should practice what we preach. Um, so I think uh, we built a team which is which is really diverse and has lots of different skills and, and a, kind of a multidisciplinary team. Uh, so we've got people who are kind of are, you know, neuroscientists, economists, um, you know, psychologists. Uh, we've got people who are kind of from the business world, who are entrepreneurs, you know, they all come together into this team and have something something different to add to the team and a different perspective to take to our research, which I think uh, will help us hopefully be more effective at spanning that bridge between academia and the kind of practical applied uh, world of um, diversity and inclusion. So why did the London School of Economics set up the Inclusion Initiative and, and what, it's, what is its remit? 
Yeah, so it was set up um, by an academic um, at LSE called uh, Dr. Grace Lorden. She's a she's a behavioural scientist, and also uh, Karina Robinson, who is someone who's sort of lived and breathed uh, the the city and financial services throughout her career, and is sort of chairman of a a board recruitment search firm. And both of them, from their differing perspectives, um, are really passionate about finding ways to to increase the diversity of the financial services sector and ensure that um, teams are inclusive and there's a space for everyone's voice in those teams. There was a kind of uh, agreement between them that there's a role to play, as I mentioned before, in sort of spanning the bridge between academia and, and practical applied world. And that also uh, there was a need for, for you know, more robust research that helps firms create these more inclusive cultures and ensures that so talent is maximised and that's the pervasive impacts of bias and prejudice um, are removed. Yeah, I mean, I think things like the recent impact or the recent sort of changes in uh, the government position on uh, unconscious bias training is a really good example of that, where where no matter what you think of their handling of that issue, uh, it's been clear that you know good intentions aren't always enough and that what people think works uh, isn't always you know, fully backed up by the research. And it's a really hard space to work in because you're working in a, in a complex environment where every individual company, workplace and culture is different from the next. So you know, finding a, a system or approach which works in, in, one, in one sector or in one company might not always translate. So I think uh, with that understanding that this is a, you know, a really complex issue and that it's really important to get things right, we're, you know, we're keen and TAI was set up to, to try and um, understand how we can really ensure that workplaces know what they have to do to, to leverage diversity based on these you know, series of, of meta-analyses which have shown that um, even though you know, diversity clearly should, um, should, should be really beneficial to team performance and, and firm outcomes, uh, that isn't always the case. And that's primarily because the inclusion of diverse voices is not always handled particularly well by firms and they don't find a way to leverage that talent. Uh, so we think that in that space where, the, where, where there are these clear gaps where individuals with fantastic experience and fantastic perspectives are, are being marginalised within companies and not giving the, given the chance to, to put forth their ideas and develop the business, there's a need for research which can provide companies with a clear sense of the tools they can take forward to to make their workplaces more inclusive. So I suppose more specifically, what, what are the aims and objectives of the research that you're doing? There's a kind of um, team of seven or eight of us uh, at TAI, um, and everyone's focusing on slightly different aspects uh, of the sort of inclusion space. Um, my specific research is it's in quite early days, so the TAA was only set up in, in autumn, but uh, I'm focused on building an index of inclusivity, which would allow uh, for a comparative ranking across publicly listed firms. So I'm focusing on the FTSE 100 uh, companies as a start point. And the idea is that we can find, find ways to, to rank and understand company culture from the outside. So a few organizations uh, previously have released indexes of inclusivity in a similar kind of space. But previously, these have always been based on self-report data uh, or questionnaires. And we think that those kind of metrics, while useful, 
can be quite vulnerable to to gaming or they can be you know fairly unaudited so so companies can put forth a picture of themselves which doesn't really represent their underlying culture so we wanted to take a, an approach which which was a bit different and straddled the gap between behavioral science and uh, and data science so the kinds of of um, sources we're going to be using to build this index are what we call unobtrusive indicators of culture. So that's uh, data points which companies release about themselves, which we can analyze to understand the kind of the company culture. So that includes things like uh, company annual reports, uh, possibly uh, Glassdoor reviews, uh, maybe Twitter, and maybe wider scraping of data sources which are available uh, on the internet. We think we can use this to to build this index to rank firms, which will, as a kind of first point, provide uh, insights and accountability, uh, which helps prospective candidates, people making decisions about how to engage with the firms to understand if these companies are, are living up to their their pronouncements on, on inclusivity. Secondly, we can then use the index to um, see if there's a strong relationship between the comparative and relative inclusion score that we, we give firms and their underlying uh, firm profitability, so profit and loss, uh, creativity, uh, release of patents and innovation. I think that second bit is really important to not only validate our approach and our theory, but also to, to add to the evidence base of the importance of inclusion and to motivate firms to take action when they can see that there's a, a genuine financial impact from not delivering uh, on inclusion in, in the workplace. Yeah, it's interesting that you talked about profitability because I talked to my clients about the, the benefits of diversity inclusion. And I talk about the, the things that are commonly understood and and have been included in the likes of the McKinsey reports like better decision making, increased profitability. I think a lot of my clients understand that on an intellectual level, but they struggle because it's hard to get the evidence to demonstrate that greater diversity or inclusion has an impact on the bottom line. So why do you think it's important that we explore the impact of inclusion on, on company profitability? I just think it is so, so important. Um, and I think I'm, I'm in danger of sounding a bit like a, a cynic. Uh, but I think the, the kind of underlying truth is that money just really talks. I think there was a sort of representative survey of uh, US CEOs um, a few years back, and it showed that only 16% of them believed that um, diversity and inclusion was profitable for, for their businesses. Uh, and I think that's just strikingly low. I think that's you know, one of the contributing factors behind why change has been always slow and incremental, uh, because the people who make decisions don't fully buy into to the benefits of diversity and inclusion. Um, and I think it's important to say that that some friends of mine who are, have been at the, sh- the sharp end of, of you know, injustice and, and bias and looks over for things like promotion and recruitment based on on their skin color or, or their gender uh, can find that value argument quite hard to swallow uh, I think that's you know understandable because you know, clearly in an ideal world the the, the social justice justice argument of the value in and of itself of having equitable fair recruitment processes and equitable fair teams should be enough to motivate firms but I think the reality of human nature is that the fastest way to drive change is to show 
the benefits to people who otherwise may conceptualize or or frame diversity inclusion as a bit of a kind of zero-sum game where it's like there's winners and losers and and they might be the losers. An analogy that I really like is the the climate change analogy. So I think if, you know, a few years ago, there was a clear, you know, there was was enough clear evidence to show that in order to get green technologies up to scale and efficient to compete with fossil fuels, there just needed to be a lot more investment in them. But the, the, you know, the pension, the pension firms were very very reluctant to divest money from, from the the fossil fuel companies, uh, even though there was a clear pro-social argument for why this was going to be beneficial. A few years later, when you know, the governor of Bank of England at the time, Mark Carney, started to talk about stranded assets and how fossil fuels uh, were going to, to effectively be on the fringes uh, and that would result in losses for firms, then suddenly these big pension firms started to divest and move, and move their money um, to, new, to new areas. So I think that any, any research which can show firms that just setting up a few networks uh, and then never really listening to them isn't enough and that their failure to consider what really drives productive and effective culture change has lost them money, uh, then they'll really start to sit up and listen and, and, and make active changes uh, to company culture. Uh, and the, you know, the business case will be will be strong enough to drive that forwards. And if they don't, if they don't respond, and, and there's you know clear evidence showing the the impact it's having on firm profitability, then shareholders and investors will, and that will put those CEOs in, the, in a sort of tenuous position. So I think it's just it's just a way to to motivate the people and the organisations who otherwise are kind of slow and reluctant to, to embrace change to, to be proactive about it. And, and that can only be a, a good thing, I think. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with organisations and they, they, they seem to find the one number that matters to them. So I worked in an organisation that they were starting out on diversity and inclusion and they, they calculated the cost to the business of um, losing women from the organisation because of work-life balance reasons. And the number ran into the millions of pounds every year. And the owners of the company were like, oh, this is serious. This is costing the organization a lot. And then that was the number that helped really ramp up activity around creating a more respectful and inclusive culture in the organization. I mean, how is your research going to handle those companies that, on the one hand, say positive things about diversity and inclusion, but on the other hand, not really truly representing that in their underlying culture? I think that's a, a great challenge and something that we're we're really aware of. Uh, because I think anyone who's who's spent time working in the diversity and inclusion sector knows that cheap talk can be a real issue. And that the first thing that firms tend to do is is to talk about uh, diversity and inclusion and that doesn't always mean that they're going to follow up with genuine plans for for building and embedding organizational change at a sort of systemic level so yeah there's there's evidence across um, behavioral science and organizational psychology that there's this thing called the intention action gap uh, which is that you know intentions and actions are often very different things and, and they're not always uh, that closely related and in general, the, you know, the research suggests that intentions follow up to become actions you know, less than a third of the time. So there's like, you know, there's multiple stages here. So, so companies talking about it might not even have any intention to change. Even if they do have an intention to change, they might not follow that through to actions which change things. So, so we, know it's a, we know it's a journey and we know that we have to be, to be sort of clever about how we 
filter between companies who are really embracing the diversity and inclusion um, initiative and space and those who are just you know waving the flag because they think that's what they should be doing um, at the moment. There's a couple of ways that we want to, to approach that. Um, and the first is to kind of look beyond the more explicit metrics that you might find from these data sources. Traditionally, I guess people would just say, uh, they just look for, for you know, um, basic, basic numbers or counts, like how often do they talk about diversity or, you know, is there, uh, how many networks do they have and things like that. Um, you know, which are important, and you know, these are, these are you know, these are these are, are are meaningful in many ways. But uh, we think there's, a, you know, there's a kind of deeper way that we can try and understand company culture, which is to look at more implicit metrics, uh, which is how do they really talk about diversity and inclusion? Uh, what kinds of language are they using? Is conversation about diversity and inclusion embedded across the organisation? So, for instance, in company reports, you will see. Firms who don't seem to be so committed about diversity and inclusion having a section of the report, you know, put hidden away somewhere in the back where they have diversity and inclusion and they have their paragraph about it. Uh, but the companies which have taken more proactive steps, and you can see that with some of the, the kind of targets they set themselves, that it's embedded right across the organization. So it's in the CEO statements, uh, it's in their kind of like financial plan, it's in their strategy, it's in their values. Um, so those kind of things can be really meaningful when you start to understand the embeddedness of um, diversity and inclusion in an organization. And there's also just some strong, some strong theory about how you can sort of analyze the use of language to understand more about whether this is genuinely held uh, commitments and values or otherwise. Um, so we'll be looking to do some kind of sentiment analysis as well to, to get behind it. Uh, and I think the, the final thing that we really have to do is to, to validate it. So we know that taking our approach of um, of looking at firms from the outside and kind of like picking through the data they release um, isn't going to give us a complete picture. So we know that to to kind of provide confidence in our metrics, we'll have to find a way to kind of validate that with firms, which have a way to look more at the inside of of um, companies and company culture. Uh, so there are lots of firms now doing you know, really interesting things where they collect data from employees and they try and understand uh, understand from employees themselves uh, what company culture is like and, and what's, what it's like to work there. And what we want to see is a kind of a strong relationship to, to, to those kind of metrics as well. And then that can help us know that we can apply this more broadly and, and take it forwards to be, to be meaningful to even those firms who, who won't work with companies in that kind of way. That's brilliant. So, I mean, what have you learned from the initial analysis of your research that you've done so far? So it is, it is early days still. So we've, we've got we've got a kind of um, a fair way to go before we have some some really kind of strong, strong results, which we're ready to, to publish. But yeah, I mean, certainly at the moment, we're doing a lot of um, analysis of these data sources. So we're just really immersing ourselves in the world of um, company reports and, and, and statements and and you know glass door reviews and, and things like that. Um, I think you know there, there's some there's some kind of sort of general uh, trends and themes which I think are quite are quite interesting. And one is that there there has been a real change in tone and structure of, of company reports and, and and the way they talk about diversity and inclusion over time. So there's just a lot more uh, reference to it in the last kind of uh, two or three years than there was you know five or six years ago. It does tend to be a lot more embedded 
it tends to be a lot more more bespoke. Uh, so rather than, you know, when you look at reports from sort of 2014 to 16, often you'll see uh, that they just copied and pasted what they put last year into the next year's report. And it's just, you know, there's, there's no really real effort to engage with, you know, what's happening within the business and what the problems are. Um, but in general, there's a trend towards that, even though you know, it's certainly not per- perfect. But I guess that's encouraging to encouraging to see. On a, on a kind of more negative side, um, the data is showing that there's still an overwhelming focus on on gender um, as as the kind of calling card for diversity and, and inclusion, which you know is 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 sort of saddening to see that that firms seem to be quite reactive in, in some ways in the way that they, they talk about um, diversity and inclusion. Certainly after the pay gap reporting came in, then there was, you know, there's been a lot, a lot more talk and a lot more consideration for um, the impacts of, you know, on of gender pay and, you know, non-inclusive working cultures um, for, for women. But uh, you know, there's, there's more work to do for them to be, to be more proactive. And I think, that's again is one of the one of the kinds of um, metrics that we're interested in is that kind of reactive versus proactive. So in the last year, we might have seen a lot of firms um, thinking about um, things like uh, you know the impact on uh, ethically diverse um, employees uh, of company culture, and that's in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. But the firms who are uh, really leading in the diversity and inclusion space aren't reactive, they're, they're proactive and they won't just you know, respond to things just because they happen. Even though that, you know, that is important, they should be responsive and dynamic. They'll be really thinking about what's it like for you know, any different uh, diverse group within an organisation to work here? What do they need to, to thrive in the organisation? And how can we build a plan which, you know, which has clear targets and we will report on and disclose on over time and has a clear pathway to change um, to make sure that all those groups are uh, appropriately supported um, and, and uh, valued within the organisation. So, so those proactive organisations are the, are the ones who tend to, to perform better. I think the, the final thing I think you know we've really noticed is that um, is that firms which acknowledge they have a problem uh, or they you know they have a problem with their, their diversity or their inclusion uh, tend to be the kinds of firms which uh, across other metrics uh, perform better. So I think it's a bit like um, the AA, like AA or something. Like the first step is acknowledging you have a problem and then you can build a, a plan for how to improve things from there. But firms which just like to say, you know, we know we've got this, we do this, and, and they don't really specify and clearly state, like, these are the issues within the company and this is what we need to change. Those ones tend to have a less convincing diversity and inclusion uh, initiatives within the company. That's really, really interesting. Um, so if the person listening to our chat today wants to just keep up to date with your research, what should they do? You can go onto our, our website. So if you do a Google for LSEs, the Inclusion Initiative, then you'll, you'll see our website. And, and on our webpage, uh, we've got an option to subscribe for updates. Uh, and then there's also a kind of people page where you can find uh, all our emails. And we're really interested in collaborating um, with practitioners in the DNI space and, and building strong links, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so if you're interested in getting in touch, uh, please do, do email um, any one of us and we'll be, we'll be very keen to, to get in contact. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Freddie, for joining me on today's episode. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I think your research is much needed. We need that evidence-based 
approach for, for diversity and inclusion and to link it back to the profitability and, and the performance of organizations. So I will definitely be keeping a keen eye on, on the research that you do. Um, and thank you for tuning into this episode of the Inclusive Growth Show with, with myself and Freddie. I hope you found the conversation interesting as well. And uh, I look forward to seeing you on one of the upcoming episodes coming out shortly. Thanks very much. Until then, take care. Thank you for listening to the Inclusive Growth Show. For further information and resources from Toby and his team, head on over to our website at milden.co.uk.